excited to be in Psalm 16 next. Um, the Psalms are, as we said, the prayers, the poems, uh, the songs of the people of God throughout the ages. They're meant more than, they're not meant to just be sort of dissected by us and broken down into little charts. They're meant to draw our hearts to worship. And I hope they do that for us here throughout the summer as we look at a number of these, these Psalms. And the Psalms, they touch on all different aspects of life, all different emotions in life. Uh, they deal with how to trust in God going through those hard times. Um, they deal with anger. In fact, this is something that's maybe surprising to some people when they read the Psalms, is you have what are sometimes called the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, that's where you're wishing, you're, you're asking for God to judge and destroy your enemies. <laughs> uh, C.S. Lewis said he, was, he didn't know what to do with this, when he was struggling through his faith with these Psalms wishing judgment upon your enemies until he came to realize that these are the prayers of God's people. What do you do when you're frustrated and you're angry at someone? You bring it to God. You don't take it into your own hands. You, you bring it to the Lord. We're actually going to look at um, later on in the series an imprecatory psalm. But there are also psalms that deal with joy and happiness and gratitude and all aspects of life. And this summer we're going to look at one that really talks about gratitude and blessing and praising God for all the blessings that he's put in our lives. Uh, that we praise God because he fills our lives with, with blessing. In fact, that idea of counting God's blessings, which is what he kind of does in this psalm, uh, just looking at what God has done and what he's given us, is one of the keys to happiness. So I've become a sort of a little bit of a student of happiness uh, lately, in the last couple of years, just reading books on theology, but also psychology and understanding happiness and where it comes from. And uh, I think most of them, most all of them would agree, both theology and psychology on this one, that part of our happiness, a big part of our happiness, is our willingness to focus on all of the positive stuff that's happened in our life, to look at, from a theological perspective, all that God has done for good in your life and reflect on that rather than focusing and dwelling on all the things that didn't go the way you wanted them to and all the problems in your life is one of the ways we become happy. We turn our hearts to gratitude. So no surprise that God, in his very word, tells us to do this, to focus on that which ultimately brings true and lasting happiness in him, to focus on the blessings that he provides. So look with me at Psalm 16. We're going to look at uh, another Psalm of David's as he counts God's blessing in his life. We read this. It should be on the screen. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We praise God because he fills our lives with blessings. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to see where we're going, but we're going to look at four uh, areas, four blessings that David reflects on in his own life and praises God for as he counts God's blessings. He starts off, it's, it's described here as a miktam of David. And uh, the reason why we say miktam instead of an English word is because we don't know what miktam means. <laughs> so if you don't know what it means, just leave it untranslated. That's kind of what happened. We think it's a musical term or something like that. It means something like song or psalm or something like that. Um, Matthew Henry thought that the Miktam uh, Psalms were the elite Psalms. They were the higher Psalms, the special ones. I don't know if that's really true, uh, but nevertheless, these are Psalms that David himself writes. He starts off with the request, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So he wants he, to God to preserve him spiritually and physically, uh, preserve his life in this world. Let it go well, let him go stay healthy, but also more than that, as we'll see towards the end of the Psalm, for all eternity as well. And he says, Lord, I've taken refuge in you. Uh, you are my fortress, in a sense. You're where I put, uh, my, I find my safety and my security. It's all in you. In fact, that idea of God being a fortress, uh, God being a place of refuge that we run to and we hide in, is one we find all over Scripture. Um, and, I, and it's interesting because when we were in Israel, I told you I was going to tie in our Israel trip in different ways. One of the things we did was we went to visit a fortress. Uh, probably the most well-known fortress in Israel is a place called Masada. And uh, it sits in the middle of a wilderness, so there's nothing around it but the Dead Sea and tons of uh, not, uh, nothingness, really, just plain dirt everywhere. It sits up high on a mountain. Uh, in fact, we had to take a cable car to get to it. And uh, on the top of that mountain was a military fortress that was used as uh, Israel's sort of last stance against the Roman Empire. Uh, there were about a thousand Jewish people in Masada. This is after the death and resurrection of Christ. About a thousand uh, Jewish people, men, women, and children, who stood up and would not bow the knee to Rome. And Rome took 10,000 Roman soldiers to conquer it. They surrounded it from every which way, and they used Jewish slaves uh, to use ramparts against it so they would have to kill their fellow Jews in order to stop them. And eventually, when it became, uh, the Romans finally were able to take it, the thousand Jews all committed suicide and burned their materials as their final act of rebellion against Rome. But that's the sort of idea they would have had in mind for a fortress, a refuge, a place of safety and security. Of course, God's fortress would never be overcome by anyone, not the Romans or anyone else. But they, he's, David is saying, in you, Lord, is where I take refuge. I find my safety. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Remember I told you there are two different words for Lord. One is more the proper name of God, capital L-O-R-D. And then there's uh, the sort of my master. This is the other one. Uh, you are my master uh, over my life. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And the truth is that all goodness comes from God. Um, actually, our understanding of good and evil comes from God. If, if there were no God, well, if there were no God, there would be nothing. So this doesn't really work. But if somehow everything was still here and there was no God, which is impossible, but if that was the case, there would be no good because we wouldn't recognize something to be good or evil. 
there'd be no moral standard. There's no moral lawgiver, and there's no moral law. Something would just be what it is. If somebody wants to murder someone, they would say, it, it is what it is. Animals, when one lion kills another, kills a zebra, doesn't feel bad, doesn't feel like I did something immoral. It just is what it is. All goodness, our standard of goodness comes from God. That's really not what he's getting at, though. What he's saying here is, every good thing in my life comes from you. Every blessing. As I reflect on my life, every positive thing I recognize comes from the hand of God. It's you and your mercy reaching out and giving it to me. All good comes from you. And then he begins, verse 3, with the saints in the land. Uh, He looks, remember, he's the king of Israel. As he looks at the land of Israel, he says, the saints in the land, the excellent ones, those are the ones I delight in. And what he's saying there ultimately is those who are faithful to God, faithful to the Torah for him, faithful to trust in the grace and the mercy of God, they're the ones I delight in in the land. So in a sense, Israel, not Israel is Israel, right? All Israel are Jewish, all the Jewish people in that point in time were part of a nation, but not everyone followed the Lord. And he's saying, but those who do, the saints in the land, they're the ones in whom I delight and I look up to. I want to be more like, I want to spend more time with them. Uh, they're the ones that make me look at my kingship and saying something is happening good because there are people who are following the Lord. They're the ones in whom is all my delight. We can talk more, we're going to talk more about that in a second, but he flips it and says, what about the other side? Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So there are some, of course, in the land who are not faithful to the one and true living God and have turned to other gods. And he's saying for them, they're not going to have this joy and this blessing. For them, there is sorrow. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Um, there are different uh, commentators differ, differ on this. Some people think he's referring here to actual human sacrifices, which was common, or at least it took place among the pagans. Others talk, think he's talking here about a blood offering where you would actually take the blood of an animal and drink it, uh, which again is grotesque to us. You know, you ever ask yourself, why is that grotesque? The thought of drinking blood so abhorrent to us. The reason is because we have Judeo-Christian ethics in the background, and we think that's disgusting. Why would we ever do that? That was common among the pagans. It was not among Israel. You never drink the blood of an animal. And he's saying, I'll never do that. I'll never turn to these worship of these pagan gods or take their name on my lips. David is saying, I'm not even going to mention the name of these gods and even bring them to my mind and to my heart. I'm just going to ignore them and focus on the one true and living God. But notice, friends, one of the blessings he's saying here is that he's thanking God for his people. Takes refuge in God and in his people. One of the gifts, one of the amazing blessings that God gives us is each other, is the church, uh, that he doesn't call us to do this alone. And that, friends, is extremely uh, important. And I know that Christians can be very frustrating. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, we get hurt by one another. We say things to one another that are not good, and we say we sin, and we have different personalities that clash at times, and... Um, but nevertheless, ultimately, it's one of God's great gifts. In fact, when somebody comes to me and they said, I, I've been hurt by so many churches, and so I, I can't find a church or whatever, and I, here's usually my, my standard response. You're focusing too much on the bride. Look at the groom. All right, so the church is the bride of Christ. 
Christ is the groom. That's sort of a symbol used to describe the relationship of us as Christians in relationship to Christ. And sometimes if you're, all your focus is on the bride and on the church and on horizontal relationships, relationships we have with one another, it gets very, very frustrating because we are sinful and we are broken people. Focus on the groom. Look to Christ who is perfect. And the more you love Christ, I think the more you'll begin to love his bride because to love what God, to love God is to love what God loves. In fact, it's, it's become very sort of common, very popular now to bash on Christians, to bash on on the church. You know, the church is, is all full of hypocrites, hypocrites and phonies, and there's nothing good about the church, and, and even Christians do this sometimes, right? Nowhere in the scriptures will you find that sort of view. Now, God sometimes bashes on the church because he's God and he's holy, and he's, and he's uh, calling his people to holiness. But friends, absolutely not. We look at the church as one of his blessings. It's one of the ways that God preserves and protects and carries his people faithfully to the end. David, as the king, looks at his people and says, my delight is in those who are saints in the land who are following the Lord. And the same should be true of us, friends. I would say a few things of application here. Uh, Number one, uh, continue on the steps of getting involved in a local church. So we have our steps of discipleship. Uh, The first step is very simple. Come. (laughs) Come to church. Come to church on Sunday mornings. And not everybody does that. And if you're here, you've already done step one, but maybe you're irregular in your attendance. And I would say let this be a time maybe uh, over the summer and as we head into the fall where you're pushing it to say, I'm going to try to be there every Sunday best I can. Okay, I get sick every once in a while. The kids get sick every once in a while. Something happens with my job or whatever. But for the most part, I'm going to commit to being here on Sunday mornings. And the second step is, I'm going to commit to membership. And some of you guys are in that position as well, that I've never, maybe you've never been baptized, never uh, committed in membership. That's to go from really from dating to marriage. <laughs> you're, at one point, you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm kinda, I kind of like First Baptist Church. They kind of like me. You know, I kind of got a little crush on them, but I'm not willing to make any type of commitment <laughs> and actually be united and say, this is my church, and I'm with them through thick and thin. Uh, even when the bad times come, I'm not going anywhere. This is my church. I'm going to fight for my church and make it work. That's what membership is all about. Membership is biblical, by the way. First Corinthians 12, uh, we are members of a body. We're part of a body. A third step is to get involved in a community group. And again, this is something we're going to start up again in the fall. If you're not involved in anything beyond Sunday morning, uh, get tr- maybe this is a time to push it to that next level and say, I want to do something more than just come here on Sundays and sit for an hour. That's great. Hour and a half, actually. Uh, but you're going to say, I'm going to go beyond that. Maybe I'm going to start with the potluck coming up and with the, the O'Donnells are leading. And I'm going to bring a meal and I'm just going to at least get to know some people. Or at least I'm going to show up a half hour early and hit the cafe and talk to some people. I'm going to go beyond merely sitting in a pew into deeper relationships. And then the fourth step is to now serve somewhere. Find a place in which you're now saying, I'm helping reach people for Jesus and bring them in to the fold. Uh, Friends, we're called as Christians uh, to rejoice in the local church as one of God's gifts, to count it a blessing. Um, If you're a a Paul, uh, find a Timothy. If you're a Timothy, find a Paul. And what I mean by that is Paul was the apostle, was an old man. He eventually became an old man, of course. Uh, And he mentored younger guys like Timothy. Timothy was a younger pastor who was learning from Paul. And that model, friends, of a younger Christian, older Christian, is a good model for us. If you're a younger Christian, it doesn't matter how old you are, you might be 70-something years old, but if you're a younger Christian, 
find a Paul. Find an older Christian who can teach you, who you can learn from, whom you can grow from. And if you're an older Christian, find a younger Christian that you can teach and help and mentor along the way. That's what the church does. We stand firm with one another. That's why we have a church here. That's why we have pastors and elders. That's why we exist. We're here to help serve those who are seeking the Lord and who are seeking to grow in him. Count it a blessing, friends, that God gives us the local church. Verses 5 through 6, celebrate the Lord's plan, his providence, his sovereignty over your life. Look what he says in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Remember from Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Uh, the Lord is, is, is the way I'm going to live life. It's going to be to the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's my portion. He's what I'm after in this life. There's 10 million different ways I can live my life, but I'm living my life for the Lord. I'm his. And you, meaning the Lord, hold my lot. You hold my destiny, my fate. As I'm giving my life over to you, I'm trusting that the future is now in your hands to do what you want with it. And look what David says in hindsight, looking at his life, verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. God has done a good job, he's saying, of planning out David's life. He's been faithful and patient and compassionate with him. And indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance that awaits me in the future. David recognizes that God is sovereign over his life, and that's a good thing. You know, so much of our, our frustration in our culture, I mentioned this last week, has to do with a lack of meaning or purpose. If you think there's no purpose to life, I'm just out there to just live, <laughs> whatever that is, make money or whatever it is, and you begin to grow frustrated and anxious with life. But the scriptures give us a clear purpose. God has made us for a purpose, and he is in control, and the future is ultimately in his hands. Friends, we see this better in hindsight. I know that. We see God's hand at work and how he's knit our lives together, brought us to this point. Uh, we see that in hindsight better than in foresight. And uh, we can understand what God's doing better looking back. And sometimes, let's be honest, we never understand. Uh, we don't fully grasp why he's done what he's done. I was talking to a, a lady, a sister in Christ, who has experienced incredible tragedy. Um, some of you guys know who I'm talking about, but somebody who has lost all four of her kids, and is now dying of cancer. And I think, where, when does it end for this poor sister? Um, and, and she's asked me, why? <laughs> why does, did God do this? And my answer is, I have no answer. I have no answer. But God has an answer. But I don't, and I can't give you an answer, and I'm not even going to pretend to play God as if I have a reason for what he's done. But I will say this, your faith is in him, you'll be with him, and it'll be clearer then. We serve a God who is sovereign and in control over our lives and over our future. We put our trust in him. That's a blessing. That's the thing we count as a gift from God, that he's in control. Verses 7 through 8, bless the Lord who is our teacher. He's our teacher. Verse 7, I bless the Lord. Uh, to bless the Lord is to praise him. So when God blesses us, he gives us his favor. When we bless God, we're not giving him his favor. We're praising him. We're saying God is worthy to be praised. I bless uh, the Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Like a, like a good, wise friend 
who comes and speaks truth into your life. And hopefully you have one of those. Somebody who's willing to confront you when they know you're doing the wrong thing and tell you, hey, that's the wrong direction to go. Turn around and go the right direction. Somebody who's going to encourage you when you're feeling down and says, you know, you've got to keep going, keep persevering. You're not feeling it right now, but you'll understand it better later on. So he sees the Lord as his counselor, leading him and guiding him along the way. I like what he says, in the night also my heart instructs me. Now, God's given us a conscience. So here's David waking up in the middle of the night as he's wrestling and thinking through some issue, some subject, maybe about his kingship and his leadership. And as he's reflecting on it, he feels the conviction of what is right as the Lord leads and guides him. I've set the Lord always before me, meaning I dwell my heart on him, on his word. I think about God. I set my mind on things above, not on earthly things, it says in the New Testament. He's transformed by the renewing of his mind in Romans 12. Set the Lord always before me, and because he's at my right hand, kind of strange language. Usually we, we describe ourselves at God's right hand, not him at our right hand. But I think David is thinking himself sitting on his throne as a king. Uh, who do you put at your right hand? Your number one counselor. Uh, the person who's going to tell you your, your second command of the kingdom. And he's saying, God is with me. And he's the one I look to for counsel. He sits at my right hand, meaning I'm constantly looking to him for advice and direction from his word. And because of that, I'm not going to be shaken. I'm going to be firm and strong. Friends, we're called to look to God as our teacher. As our teacher. And how do we learn from God? God's given us two books. <laughs> this is what Francis Bacon says. God's given us two books to learn from him. The book of creation and the book of his word. <laughs> and the book of creation speaks of the world he's made and of his beauty and of his goodness. And that's a good thing. When we see rivers and the trees and beautiful rocks and formations and so forth, that should bring us to praise. Absolutely brings us to worship. But more than that, he's given us his word, which is clearer. Uh, there are certain things you cannot understand simply from nature. The wrath of God. Well, maybe you see that in, in the way nature is broken with hurricanes and so forth, but we don't have any clarity. Uh, the return of Christ. Oh, <laughs> there are a lot that's not clear from the book of nature that we look to the scriptures and God reveals to us from his word. Friends, I just encourage you to look to the Lord as your teacher. Uh, be in the scriptures. Uh, I'm not sure if you, you do a daily devotional. Um, if you don't, this will be honestly one of the most transformative things in your life. Find a time every day, it could be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, could be a half hour, whatever it is, in which you sit, hopefully in the same place, <laughs> at the same time, and you read this book. That will transform your life. And I'm going to get, get an applause from Frank on that one. I know that. So study this book and learn about God. And I'll just encourage you, if you're, you have kids, uh, do family devotionals. Uh, my kids are getting older right now, and I might, our goal was to do them every night. We probably do them once or twice a week. <laughs> I know it happens. Life gets busy. But spend the time where you sit together as a family, read the scriptures, or read other books. Uh, if you've got young kids, I'd recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible, an excellent book that sort of ties the whole Bible together, points it to Jesus, and easy to read. Um, I would also recommend the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, friends, if you have a chance to let your kids grow up reading the Chronicles of Narnia, don't miss that. Don't let them grow up without having read that series, all right? Make sure your kids or your grandkids even get a chance to read uh, that book. And make sure, of course, they're reading this book, Scriptures, first and foremost, but... Use that time for family devotionals. And then I would say, make sure you're theologically well-grounded. 
Don't be a lightweight. As he says here, I will not be shaken because I put the Lord right beside me as my counselor. Uh, Be a rock, not a reed. Uh, Go deeper uh, in your roots. Uh, You know, I I, uh, used to be a little concerned that, you know, my faith would be shaken if I read people who are sort of had different beliefs and so forth, and uh, not anymore. Uh, I have no problem. I, I, so I like to listen to the best argument of a different position. And, and I have to say, uh, I'll take atheism, and if you're an atheist here, I, I don't mean anything personal with you, but I've listened to the absolute best arguments from atheism. They're terrible. <laughs> They're not convincing. And I, I know I have my bias and so forth, but I don't find them even in the least bit convincing. Um, I was listening to, last night I had the opportunity to go hear uh, Francis Collins speak. He's a scientist. He's the one who was the, led up the Human Genome Project that mapped the human DNA. Um, and uh, uh, he's also the president of the National Institute of Health right now. He's been there for the last nine years under the last uh, two presidents. And uh, he's a devout evangelical Christian. And one of the things he said is he came, did not grow up in a Christian home. He came to faith in medical school. And he said, I've been a Christian now for 41 years, and you can imagine he's heard every argument of everything about science, and he said, there is not a thing in science that has led me to not believe in God. Not a thing. In fact, the exact opposite. Uh, science has only revealed the first book we talked about, the book of nature, showing the greatness of God. And so go deeper. Make sure you've got some roots that go down deep so you're not shaken. Uh, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, if you've never read that. I can give you a million recommendations if you want. Uh, Read The Reason for God by Tim Keller, if you haven't read that. Go deeper in your faith. Let the Lord be your teacher. And then we come to his fourth point. He praises God, counts his blessings that God has given us as people. God has given us a plan for our lives. He's in control. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. You know that old statement? I think Billy Graham started that. For those in Christ, it's true. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. He's working it out. He praises God because he's our teacher, but he rejoices that God saves us forever. Saves us forever. Look at verses 9 through 11. He said, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. I told you, this is a psalm of praise. This is a psalm of joy. My flesh also dwells secure. I feel safe in God. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And you remember, what is Sheol? Again, it's one of those words that if you don't know exactly what it means, you leave it untranslated, right? Well, Sheol uh, just means the grave, the place of the dead. Uh, our, most of our understanding of heaven and hell come from Jesus, who came after the Psalms. Uh, the Old Testament left it a little more vague and saw death as really Sheol, the place of the dead. When you die, you go there. What happens there, we don't know exactly. <laughs> but you end up in Sheol. He's saying, I know this, David says, but God will not abandon me to Sheol, to the grave. There's going to be more to it than that. He won't let his Holy One be corruption. Um, this psalm right here in this passage was seen as pointing directly to Jesus. <laughs> because David is really just a foreshadowing of Jesus, the true king of Israel. That God will not abandon his people to the grave and to ruin and to destruction because he'll give us eternal life, and he does that primarily through his son, Jesus, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Isn't one of the interesting things, too, when we were in Israel? Uh, we got to see David's grave, and uh, interestingly enough, David's grave is right below this place, the first picture, throw up there. 
And uh, I did put this online, so you may know what it is. Anyone know what that is? Well, those who went to Israel should just yell this right out. What's that? The upper room. Yeah, exactly. That is the traditional place where we believe the upper room was. Actually, it goes back to the 4th century, became a synagogue after that. Um, but that's the place we believe that Jesus met with his disciples and served the Last Supper. Uh, that's the place that we believe that Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection with the locked doors. And, as Robin just mentioned, that's the place we believe where the Holy Spirit came upon his disciples and they began to have the tongues of fire over their heads and Pentecost began. And when, David go, uh, when Peter goes downstairs and begins preaching to all the crowds, what does he quote? Psalm 16. You will not abandon your Holy One to corruption. And he says, David's bones are right here. So it wasn't referring ultimately to David. It was referring to Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's solid, rock-solid proof that God doesn't abandon his people to to Sheol. He rises them from the dead. In fact, we had an opportunity to visit the tomb of Jesus as well. Um, So there are two places in Israel uh, where they believe Jesus may have risen from the dead. Um, One of them is the most common, the traditional one, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and that's because they built a church over it. In fact, there are churches all over the place. So anything basically people thought was a holy place, the church built, they built buildings over it and said, hey, we're going to build a church here and here and there and all these places. So that's one of the places, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. That's the traditional place, and there are good reasons to believe that may be the place where Jesus rose from the dead. The other is the garden tomb, which is pictured uh, behind me. And the garden tomb, interestingly enough, <laughs> has a hill nearby that... Use your imagination a little bit. That was excavated. Looks like a skull. Interestingly enough, the tomb uh, they've also excavated had a wine press in the area, which meant it was a garden. Which scriptures describe the tomb of Jesus as coming from a garden. We also know there were two ancient roads that happened to pass right near this tomb. And we know that Jesus... Death is described as happening in a public place. And then, this. A tomb that was excavated that dates back to the first century. Now again, I don't know if this is Jesus' tomb. (laughs) We don't know for sure. And actually, it's really a good thing that we don't know. uh, Because uh, if we knew, we would build a church over that place next, right? And it would become this holy site and everyone would make too much about it. And as it says in the scriptures, he is not here. Uh, He is risen. See the place where he laid before. He's no longer there. But there is at least a very good possibility that that is the place where Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Here's the neat thing about it. Guess what was in the tomb? Nothing. (laughs) You know why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the whole point. He's saying he would not leave. There were no bones. uh, There were no dust from bones left in there. It's an empty tomb because as he says in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That he will rise from the dead. And again, if Jesus raises from the dead and our faith is in him and we're in Christ, then those in Christ will live for eternity as well. David rejoices in the fact that all these blessings that he enjoys in this life won't end. In fact, they'll be carried into eternity as we enjoy him forever. David understood, as we said at the outset, 
that our true joy, <laughs> he says in verse 11, uh, make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. They come from reflecting and counting of the blessings that God's given. But I wonder, uh, if you're not joyful, if you're not a joyful, but you're struggling with happiness, and everybody wants to be happy, by the way. Uh, I know that about you, that you want to be happy. You know, I know that because that's true of every human being. Even those who put on a, gr- a frowny face, uh, they do that because they like it. It makes them happy. <laughs> that's why they do it. Uh, that's everyone in their own heart is pursuing what they believe will make their life more happy. Well, friends, one of the ways we become truly happy, according to the scriptures, by reflecting on the blessings that God has given us in Christ. God has given us himself as a refuge and his people we lean upon, we rely upon, we find joy in fellowship with one another. God has given us his sovereign plan for our good. The future is not simply left to chaos and chance. He's in control and he's working out his perfect plan in our lives. Even if we can't see it perfectly going forward, we see it better in hindsight. He's given us his word and creation as our teacher, our, even our own conscience. And he's given us the gift of eternal life. He will not abandon his people to the grave. We look on an eternal scale trusting in Christ. Rejoice in God and what he's given us. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful to you who you are, and we're grateful for your word and what it reveals to us. We're thankful, Father, particularly this morning for the book of Psalms. I thank you for the vast array of emotion that it gives us. And there are times, Lord, where we feel down and out, and we look to the scriptures, and we look to Psalms like Psalm 23 that we looked at last week, and trust you as the shepherd who carries us through the valley of the shadow of death and is with us with rod and staff in hand. And there are times where we're filled with anger and frustration, maybe with somebody who has harmed us and hurt us. We do see the scriptures and we see the example of the psalmist depending upon you and turning their frustration and anger over to you and looking to you as the judge of all the earth, recognizing that vengeance is yours and not ours. And Lord, we also experience times of great delight and joy and praise. And we're grateful for psalms like Psalm 16 that draw our heart to praise and worship as well. Thank you, Father, for the many blessings you give us. Here are the four that we just looked at together, but there are countless more, our families, our kids, our marriages, Lord. New babies, like a new baby that will be joining us next week, Lord willing, and Emily, Lord. But you've given us uh, jobs in which we're able to provide and supply for ourselves and our family and food and the great privilege of living in the United States, a country that gives us freedoms and is in safety, Lord, and the blessing of being born here in the 21st century with all of the medical technology that we have today, and Lord, your, your blessings are truly endless. Help us, Lord, to count your blessings, reflect on your goodness, and rejoice in our God, even as we look forward to that day in which 10,000 years will pass. And no less days will be there for us to sing your praise. Be with us, Lord. Be with our meeting after the service, too, as we enjoy some fellowship and some coffee and dessert, too. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, our Lord, in whose name we pray.
Amen.